The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're in Genesis 3, and for those of you who maybe are newer to our series coming in since we started the last one, I thought I'd quickly explain what I've explained multiple times for all of our regular folks. Uh, Our pattern here is when we are in a section, we read the entire section. I don't do that to kill time, believe me. I'm generally speaking not a person who likes to waste anyone's time, but particularly not my own. Uh, A reason we do this is to keep the context in view each and every time, plus, as an added bonus, the more you hear it read and the more you go through it and think about it, the longer it sticks in your heart. And So that's ultimately what we want. So each and every time we get together, we'll read all of Genesis 3, since that's our particular section in view, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So let's read Genesis chapter 3. Verses 1 to 24. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we are about to begin a new section of the text this morning, and we have already talked about this briefly in the past. We've mentioned it multiple times, but this is a critical part of this story. It's a critical part of this overall series that we're in as we try to work through these first 11 chapters. And we want to come this morning and simply present not just today's message, our time this morning in the text to you, but this entire chapter, this entire scene that we're going to be reading about, all of the messages are going to come out of it. Lord, will you do a work here in Genesis 3 in our hearts? Will you take these words and make them very, very clear, very poignant? Will you use this part of the story to clarify in our hearts and minds what we really believe about you. This has the potential, I believe, Lord, to be an incredibly valuable study to us all. Not not that the rest has not been or will not be. But Lord, right now, I think that this is where we're at. This is where we need to be. We need to think about these things very, very deeply and very clearly. And so give us, if you will, Lord, a mind and a heart to receive these things. Father, today, even as we just try to get a a basic understanding of what's in front of us, will you show us Jesus? Will you make the gospel clear, even even in an overview? Help us to see him today, Lord, and to be like him because of it. So we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. John Walton is a uh, biblical scholar and an author, and I was reading one of his books this week. He was writing about Genesis and uh, he was telling a story about a friend of his that's name is John Landsman. That doesn't really matter. But Mr. Landsman apparently had a son or has a son who, when he was a first grader, did something rather cute and funny, which, of course, first grade aged children are prone to do. And so one day the boy was at school and the teacher was reading the story of the three little pigs. And I'll just let uh, uh, Walton tell the story from here. Quote, she came to the part of the story where the first pig was trying to acquire building materials for his home. And she said, and so the pig went up to the man with a wheelbarrow full of straw and said, pardon me, sir, but might I have some of that straw to build my house with? Then the teacher asked the class, and what do you think that man said? My friend's son raised his hand and said, I know, I know, holy smokes, a talking pig. Um, Well, here we are now in Genesis 3 and the story of the serpent and holy smokes, a talking snake, right? This is where we're at in the story at this point. I am, uh, as I was praying, I, I was saying some of this even, because I mean it, my, I'm very excited to finally be getting to this part of Genesis with you. I, it would be inappropriate, I think, to elevate one part of the text above the other in terms of its significance or importance to us. However, can I stress to you here on this first Sunday in Genesis 3 how important this study is going to be? N- not just to understand Genesis but to understand almost everything in our theology. Here in Genesis 3, you see the foundation of our understanding of man, of sin, of Satan, of salvation, of God's plan, of God's goodness. I mean, there are so many things here in this chapter that are the cornerstone, no pun on our name, the cornerstone of so much else that we believe. 
For me, even, I think it's forgot, I forget how critical this story really is. We have a Sunday school knowledge of it, right? Most of us do anyway. We, we've heard it over and over again through the years, but when was the last time you really sat down and tried to plumb the depths of all that's going on here in these verses? I, I, until being forced to do it because of our study, had never done that before. Having done it now, I am, I am incredibly excited. On the other hand, I'm a little apprehensive as well, just for full disclosure's sake. I warned you months, well, weeks ago now, that some of you are going to struggle here in Genesis chapter 3. That's because we're going to deal with some hard stuff in these verses. Very hard stuff. It's going to force you, I think, to clarify in your mind and in your heart exactly what you believe about God. Do you really believe that he's good? Do you really trust his plan? Do you really understand that his word is authoritative above all else? I mean, we can say these things, and I know we mean them. I'm not questioning our sincerity. However, you know, the rubber meets the road when you're forced to really interact with things that, are, that can be difficult at times to work through. And those, there are things like that here in Genesis chapter 3. So what we're starting off on today is a journey. It's a journey together into the text, okay? We're all on this together, me and you. My job is to try to lead the way, to show you the path, to point out the things that I think you need to be looking at and considering. But if uh, you don't come with me, then it's like the old proverb that he who leads when no one follows takes a walk, you know? I'll be by myself in the process, and that doesn't sound like too much fun. You've got to come along. You've got to engage your mind, your heart, your thinking throughout this. And so that's what our plan is. And if we're going to start this journey and we're going to go on it together, then always helpful, always necessary to begin by preparing yourself, okay? Preparing your heart and mind to look at what's ahead so you can know what's coming, know what you're going to see, know what to look for along the way. Today's going to be an overview of chapter 3 so that we can do all of that. And then over the weeks ahead... We'll start down the path and we'll see where it takes us each and every step along the way. I want to give you this overview this morning in two parts, okay? And this won't take a ton of time because it's an overview and we're going to spend some time around the Lord's table. But this overview here in two parts. Number one, we're going to start with context. Context. Let's start very quickly. Is my slide not working? Nope. There we go. Context. Very good. Let's start very quickly by reminding ourselves of what Moses is doing here in this part of the story. As I told you very long ago now, it seems like, here at the end of the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, Moses begins telling us how many stories. Do you remember how many stories are in Genesis? Ten. Ten stories here in Genesis. And through these ten stories, he's trying to help Israel understand who they are, and who this God is that has brought them out of the land of Egypt. Here, we're in this very first story where he's trying to explain to them what happened to that perfect world that God created back in Genesis chapter 1. Because if anyone knows that the world isn't perfect, it's probably the Israelites having spent 400 years in captivity. They've got a general idea that whatever he talked about in Genesis 1 doesn't exist anymore. And so what happened? How do we end up where we are today? And so Moses begins to explain that using three scenes, okay? Three scenes in one story. 
We just finished studying scene number one that went from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 25. And in that scene, we learned that God had made human beings, male and female, with what? The spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance that they needed in order to serve him, keep his commands so that they could enjoy abundant life in his creation. He had given them everything they needed. That's what chapter 2 is trying to explain to us. And I think that what God is doing here with, with this story that Moses is telling is he's trying to help us understand that the sin we're about to study here in chapter 3 is 100% inexcusable. There, there's no reason why it has to happen. He's given them everything they need. And so Moses, he has detailed for, that for us here in chapter 2. I think that's, that's what his point is there. That's what we finished up last time. Scene 2 then begins in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 24. And then, of course, you get to scene 3 uh, here in chapter 4. It takes up that whole chapter. That's the flow of the story, okay, how it's moving. And by the time we're done with these three scenes, what we will have understood is, okay, what happened to that world? How did it go from that to this, what we see around us, you know, dolphins on the walls. That was not part of God's plan in creation, by the way, okay? No dolphins on walls. They were supposed to be in the ocean. How did it end up here? This, this is what Moses is trying to explain. General context there, but two other things I'd like to point out to you this morning, just so you can understand. And I just want to clear these two items just out of the way up front. If you've never thought about these things, you've never heard people talking about them, and then you can probably just tune out for about five minutes here, because it won't take very long to cover these two items. If you have, though, listen up very carefully. Number one, did you realize that there is a a gap of time between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3? Ever stopped and thought about that before? If you have, then maybe some of this is repetitive. If not, listen very carefully. There's a gap of time between the end of chapter 2 and the end, beginning of chapter 3. You say, how do you know that? Well, remember what chapter 2 is? What did I call it? I called it a betweenquel. That means that in chapter 2, Moses is going back into what he said in chapter 1 to give more information. He's taking us back to day 6 because in chapter 1, when he talked about what happened on day 6, he didn't, he didn't give any details. He said, God made the land animals. God made man And then he went on. He just says that it happened, but he doesn't explain anything else about it. Well, he wants to come back in chapter 2 and give us a little more information about that. That's why I'm calling it a betweenquel. And if he's coming back into chapter 1, that means that at the end end of that day, what's coming on the day after? The day of rest, right? The seventh day. So minimum, there's a one day gap of time between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Now, maximum, how much time could there be? Could be decades for all we know. Nobody knows that you don't get another uh, time marker until you get to Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, which says when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Okay, so Adam's 130 years old when Seth is born. So you've got all this big window of time that you're looking at. However, it's a little shorter than that because we know Seth isn't born until after what happens. Anyone take a guess? Yeah, Cain and Abel. Until Abel gets killed. In fact, Genesis 4.25, Eve names him Seth because God had given her another offspring instead of Abel. Because Cain had killed him. 
So you've got to back it up a little bit from 130 years, and so, you know, it could be decades in between. We don't know how long. And since the events of Genesis 3 are happening prior to the time that Cain and Abel are born, well, you begin to see the difficulty in trying to figure out how much time is here. Now, what does it matter? Why would I even point this out to you? Well, I point it out to you for two reasons. This is the very first example we see of something that's going to come up a lot in Genesis, and that is questions that come in people's minds for which they cannot give sure answers. Okay? It's going to happen a lot, particularly when it comes to these time kind of issues in Genesis. And so I'm like, well, what do, how do I explain this to you? And I thought, well, what a great example. Can I give you four principles to use when you're going to come across these sorts of issues in Genesis and anywhere else? Okay, I don't have them on the slide. You're going to write them down if you're going to keep them, okay? Four, four little quick principles. Number one, use your brain. Thank you. I, I, I love people. I really do. I just can't stand people who don't use their brains, you know. If, if no one does this in here, it better never happen after today. I hate when people send me emails of stupid things they found about something happening somewhere to someone and they never check to see if it's true or not. Every time I get one of those kind of emails from anybody, my opinion of them drops a notch at a time, okay? The more you send, the lower they go. Now, again, thankfully, none of you, I, I can say this with 100% honesty, are guilty of that. I Don't start. If you do it, even trying to be funny, you're still losing credibility, okay, in my mind. Either way, all right? Use your brain. That's all I'm saying, okay? When you're in the text and you're trying to look at things, you're trying to figure it out, use your brain. That's it. That leads you to number two, to simply understand what you see. You don't have to ask a hundred questions about what you don't see. Focus on just trying to understand what you do see. That leads you to number three, say with certainty what you're certain about, okay? Say with certainty what you're certain about, and then number four, don't say anything else. That's it. Now, this is a good example. I can say with certainty there's a gap of time. It's at least one day. It could be decades. That's all I'm going to say. That's it. It's a great example of what we're going to run into, believe me, more and more. We're going to get to chapter five, and chapter five is nothing but genealogies. Who's excited about chapter five, okay? Yeah, that's what I thought, okay? Chapter five is nothing but genealogies. We're going to run into that there. We're going to use our brains, understand what we can see, say what we can say with certainty, not say anything else. Here's your first time you get a good example of that here in the text. That's one reason I point this out to you. Second reason I wanted to point it out to you is to show you that Adam and Eve had a real experiential knowledge of what it meant to live in a perfect world. It's not just theoretical for them. It's not like, you know, God made them, he names her woman, and then all of a sudden they sin, and they never get to really experience what this world is like. No, no, no. Whether it's one day, one week, one month, one year, a decade, a century, I don't know, they really get to live in it. They experienced that abundant life that God had made them to experience. That makes the sin of chapter 3 that much sadder. When you begin to realize that these are people who are losing out on something real, something present in their life, it, it really makes it a much sadder thing, I think. Number two, second item I wanted to bring up, is the identity of the serpent. Can we talk about that for a minute? 
the identity of the serpent. Very first thing you need to notice. And the reason I'm covering this today is because I don't want to cover it again. Okay? Very first thing you need to notice is if you look in Genesis chapter 3, you see that Moses doesn't care about the identity of the serpent. Why am I bringing it up then? Well, because I'm curious. Are you? I, I, I want to know. But Moses doesn't. He never mentions it. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't give you any clues. He doesn't seem to care where the serpent came from, why he can talk, what he's doing. He he doesn't care about any of those little extraneous details of the story. The only thing that Moses cares about here in Genesis 3 is the dialogue, the conversation that occurs between the serpent and Adam and Eve and then what comes out of that. That's all he cares about. Was he personally curious? I don't know. Did he know something that he didn't tell us? Maybe. Who cares? We don't know that now either. I want you to see that in Genesis, though, we get no information. So you go, okay, well, if we're, if we're interested in the identity, identity of the serpent, uh, maybe it's in the rest of the Old Testament. And so you start reading Genesis 4, and you go all the way through the end of a chapter of Malachi, and you see nothing. Nothing. The only statement of any sort giving you any information about the serpent in the Old Testament is what Moses himself says in Genesis chapter uh, four, 3, excuse me, where he says that the serpent is a beast of the field. That's it. Nothing else. No other information. And even that only tells you that Moses sees the serpent as a real snake, not like figment of somebody's imagination or that maybe Satan had disguised himself as a serpent. No, 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 it's, it's a real serpent. That's all. That's all you need to know. Nothing else in the whole Old Testament gives you any information other than that. It's not until you get to the New Testament that anyone seems to mention this at all. And so Jesus, in John chapter 8, he's talking to the people around him. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Pause, because Jesus was a big proponent of how to win friends and influence people, right? Try that one when you go to Starbucks next time. I'll take a grande peppermint mocha, you seed of Satan, and see how that goes over for you. He doesn't care. He just simply starts off, hey, you're of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Who's he referencing? Abel. Cain and Abel. You were a murderer from, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And most people, when they read these words of Jesus, say this is, this is a reference back to Genesis 3. Because where did lies come from? Who introduced lies into the world? It was the serpent here in the garden, the very first liar. Jesus is most likely referencing Satan here, identifying him with the serpent. But an even clearer reference would be Revelation 12.9, where John is describing a battle that occurs between Michael and, and God's angels and Satan and his angels. And he says that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He's clearly connecting the identity of the serpent in the garden to that of the devil, of Satan, there at the end of time in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And so it's clear from the New Testament perspective that the serpent of Genesis 3 is who? It's, it's Satan. So it confirms our suspicions. We kind of thought that anyway, 
Because it's not normal to see a talking serpent anywhere. It's got to be something weird going on here. Yeah, there is something weird going on here. Satan is involved in this. The words we're going to hear in Genesis 3, these are Satan's words. The, the, the temptation that's going to be placed before them, this is Satan's work. We've got, we got to keep that in mind. And so in the future, as I talk through all these pieces and I just say, and Satan said this or did that, I know Moses doesn't say that. I'm allowing the New Testament understanding to help my understanding here in Genesis 3. Is that clear? Okay. Okay, this is context. We're just trying to set the stage for the journey. We pack the bags, put these things away so we know how to proceed. Next, let's talk about content. <clears throat> content. I did this in chapter 2. I just tried to walk us through, from a high-level perspective, what, what's in the text? What's in the story? What are you going to see here in this? And I think we're going to see four things in Genesis chapter 3. very first thing we're going to see is rebellion. Rebellion in verses 1 to 6. I had never noticed this until I started studying through Genesis these past months. But here in these first six verses of Genesis 3, we are going to watch Adam and Eve purposefully rebel against every single component of God's word and will. It's, it's a common misunderstanding, and I'm guilt, I have been guilty of it most of my life. It's a common misunderstanding that we carry as believers who grew up in Sunday school hearing these stories that the sin of Genesis 3 is just about the tree. It's about eating the fruit. Okay, that's a part of it. I got it. I'm, I'm, I'm with that. But that's the capstone. It's not the whole thing. It's the first of many failures that are going to occur here in these first six verses, as you work through the text, you're going to see that the fall isn't about one single event. It's not as if it was just one single event that brought pain and sickness and death into this world all by itself. No, you're going to look at this here in these verses and you're going to see that everything that we learned about the spiritual capacity of man, every single piece of it, they're going to rebel against in six verses. That's it. Every single moral responsibility that God gave them in chapters 1 and 2, every one of them will be ignored and rejected in these first six verses. Every aspect and blessing of the communal assistance that was supposed to be there between Adam and Eve, it will all be violated in these first six verses when when I got done looking at this and just seeing every, I mean, you, we're going to make a checklist. We're just going to mark them off. They failed. They failed. They sinned. They failed. I got done doing that. I sat back in my chair in my office, and the only thing, only thing that came to my mind was R.C. Sproul's definition of sin. Do you, do you know how R.C. Sproul, we, we give away his books on the table. Do you know how he defines sin? He calls sin cosmic treason. Cosmic treason treason. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident, kind of like an oops, my bad sort of thing. It is nothing less than cosmic treason. Complete, full rejection and rebellion against God. Nothing less than that. 
That's what these first six verses are all about. And we're going to have to spend some time trying to understand the completeness. That's what I really want you to get. I know that you know they sin. I understand that. I don't think you're stupid. I want you to understand the completeness of their sin. That's what's critical here. That leads then to the second thing we're going to see. It's realization in verse 7. Now, I told you Moses is a master storyteller. I mean, he's really good at what he does. And you can see his skill here in chapter 3. Because one of the things that the serpent tells Adam and Eve is this. He says, um, you know, <clears throat> but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I hope you recognize that in that statement there is part truth and part lie. Do you see it? There's a little bit of truth Mixed with a little bit of lie. Had it been all lie, maybe they would have caught it. I don't know. But he didn't work this way. And one of the things, this is not a promise, by the way. One of the things I hope to develop as we work through Genesis 3, I'm going to try my best to do so. I want us to develop a biblical theology of temptation. Ever stopped and thought about that? How does Satan really work in temptation? Because even though this is just one example, it's... The first and foundational example that you're going to see the basic pattern repeated of throughout the whole rest of Scripture and into your life today. And one of the things we would look at if we were going through that, which I hope to do, is that one thing that's typical of temptation is that oftentimes temptation is a mixture of truth and lie. It comes together. It's how Satan tricks us with it. The serpent here is telling them the truth partially, and to make sure that you see that, Moses, the master storyteller, he reuses the serpent's words when he explains what Adam and Eve realize in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. He promised that they would be open. They were open. It's not to what they had hoped to see. That's the problem. It didn't pan out. The promise didn't come true. And with only two sentences here, Moses lets us see the very first realization that sin never delivers what it promises. Ever. Two two sentences here in verse 7. We have, all we're left with is Adam and Eve trying to pick up the pieces of that perfect world that they had had the privilege of living in for some amount of time. That leads us into number three. The Revelation, verses 8 to 13. And I'm not using the Revelation here in the sense of God revealing, you know, truth to man, like the Scriptures. We talk about that being God's revelation. No, no, no. I'm talking about the revelation of their sin. You realize, I hope, or maybe you've never thought about it. Let me, let me help you think about it today. There's another time gap now. There's a gap of time between the moment that Adam and Eve eat the fruit and the moment that they have to confess it. God himself. It's not like when they ate the fruit, all of a sudden God's like, Adam, you know, thundering from heaven. That would have been easy. Like, I'm sorry, Lord, you know, whatever would have happened. They eat the fruit. They have time to realize what they did. They have time to go find fig leaves. They have time to try to put those fig leaves together to make some clothing. And then, after all of that, I think it's even more amazing about what God does next. Okay, this, all this time has passed up to now. Now Moses says that Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden. They have time to hear that. 
They have time to go hide themselves. And again, God doesn't say, Adam! He comes and He asks the most heartbreaking question imaginable. Where are you? Now, when I come home sometimes, I walk in my front door, and if I don't see Jamie and the kids, I might say, hey, where are you? Mine is a question of ignorance, because I don't know where they're at. Are they in the kitchen? Are they in the bedroom? One of the kids' rooms? Do they go to the garage? Are they in the backyard? Where are they? When I ask that question, it's out of ignorance, because I need information. God's not asking this out of ignorance. He's not asking this because he needs information. He's using it to reveal the truth of their sin. Three words, where are you? And what we're going to see is that not only does it begin to reveal the truth about what has occurred there in the garden, it begins to reveal some of the very ugly consequences of what has changed between man and God and between husband and wife. Already, I mean already, you begin to see the consequences of sin. It's all laid out for you in verses 8 to 13. And then the final thing you see is retribution and redemption. Verses 14 to 24. I really wanted to separate these two, but I couldn't. Because the text doesn't allow it. It doesn't separate them for us. Because of their sin a certain amount of retribution or of punishment is brought to bear on them. Okay, So because they sin, the curse enters the world. Because they sin, pain and toil and labor enter the world. Because they sin, strife enters the world. Because they sin, death enters the world. All these terrible things, right? And that's normally what we focus on, if we're being honest, when we read Genesis 3. But intermingled with all of those things is the hope of redemption over and over and over again in different ways. From the statement in verse 15 about a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Think about that. To the the new name that Adam gives to his wife down in verse 20. That's the first time her name is called Eve. And why is she called that? Because she's the mother of all living Death was the pronouncement. He names her with a name of hope to the provision of clothing that God gives them in verse 21 and even to their expulsion from the garden. In every single instance, you see see the hope of redemption. You go, wait a minute, okay, I understand the promise in verse 15. I understand the name. I understand uh, the clothing. How is being kicked out of the garden a good thing? Well, look at verse 22. What's God concerned about? Why does he kick them out of the garden? He's concerned they're going to go in and eat of the tree of life and live forever. In fact, he doesn't even finish the sentence. It's kind of a, it's just a fragment. He just, unless they do this, you say, well, wouldn't living forever be great? Wouldn't that take care of, of the, the death issue? Yeah. But who wants to live an eternal life of pain and sickness and sadness and sin? Somebody I was reading this week pointed out that death is both bane and boom for them. It's part of their punishment. It also becomes their release. If they had to live forever in this, that might be punishment. enough. <laughs> That'd be a horrible punishment. But they're given a chance to escape through death. It's both their punishment and their release. Everything here is a mixture 
of redemption and retribution. And at first, because of my personality, that bothered me because I wanted to have nice, you know, five nice clean R's. I wanted it all to look right. The more I thought about it, though, the more I realized that, you know what, the gospel is a mixture of the same two things. And when I realized that, I was thankful that we can't separate them anymore. Because the gospel, in the gospel, you see that redemption requires retribution. Salvation requires punishment, just it's not of us. That's the blessing of what the gospel is all about. It required the punishment of Jesus. And so on the cross, what do you see? You see an example of redemption and retribution mixed together. Jesus is punished for our sins. And I thought about that. I'm like, this is how it's always been. So in Genesis 2, what do you see? Redemption, retribution mixed together. You look at the Old Testament law and how a sin dealt with. An innocent lamb has to be sacrificed on the altar. Retribution and redemption mixed together. You look at Isaiah, and Isaiah makes his most paradoxical statement when he looks ahead to a servant who's going to bring salvation, and he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Retribution. He was crushed for our iniquities. Retribution. Upon him was the chastisement, the retribution that brought us peace, redemption. And by his wounds, with his wounds, retribution, we are healed. Redemption. They're mixed together. You can't separate them. And then, of course, as I said on the cross, it's exactly what you see. is Jesus, the sinless one, hangs there naked, which I think about that now in new eyes, even as I think about Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden and what that had to do with that story. He hangs there naked in shame before the people as God pours out all of his retribution for sin on his son every single ounce of it for all humanity from Adam's sin till the end of time. And in the destruction of Jesus, what do we get? Redemption, right? Salvation comes from it. I wonder if that's what Isaac Watts had in mind when he wrote this stanza of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow, retribution, and love, redemption, Low mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Did it ever happen like that? Were thorns composed so rich a crown? And the answer to that is a resounding no. There's never been a more beautiful picture of retribution and redemption mingled together than on the bloodied body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission then in chapter 3 is going to be no different than it's been before. Right? We're going to understand what Moses wrote. We're going to try to be good students of the text. But we're always going to do that through the lens of Christ. So that we can be changed to be like him. Let's pray. Father, we, we're excited. <clears throat> Maybe a tad apprehensive, but, but excited about what is before us here in this story we see that there are so many components of what is going to happen here in Genesis 3 that directly affect each and every one of us. All of us have rebelled against you completely. 
all of us live under the constant realization of our sins. All of us have been revealed to be sinners and liars before you. And then, Lord, all of us, all of us are thankful that you have chosen not to pour your retribution out on us, but have chosen to pour it out on your Son so that we can experience redemption. We gather here today on this Lord's Day morning because of that redemption. Because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death once and for all. Here we are now remembering that. Here we are now this morning celebrating that and worshiping you because of it. And so Lord, as we come into this story, please, please, Father, protect us from the temptation to separate what we read in Genesis 3 from the beautiful truth of the gospel. Help us to see Jesus throughout the text. Help us to understand how each component of the story that we've seen this morning furthers our understanding and deepens our love for Christ. Lord, will you make us like Jesus in Genesis 3 this, in the next weeks ahead and the weeks ahead? That's our request this morning. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts now to come around your table to worship you here, help these truths to settle deep in our hearts and minds so that we can see the significance of them even here in this act of worship we're about to partake in. We ask all these things in your precious Son's name. Amen.